Well, I can't think of greater expressions of worship as we move into this Christmas season, this Advent season, than to think about a mercy bigger than we can define. I don't know how deep you have to look into your life to realize that I don't deserve it. But I'll tell you, I don't have to go very far in mine. And to think that we have a God that cares so deeply for us, that like he said, he's willing to leave the 99 and chase me. I'll tell you, he spent a lot of time chasing me. And he's always found me. And for some strange, unknown, gracious reason, I take his hand and I move back. And he accepts me. And he doesn't create any guilt in me. He doesn't cause any shame. He doesn't build something up. He doesn't shake his finger at me. He just puts his arms around me. And when we can get that picture clearly embedded in our heads, Christmas has got such a different meaning. This is not just about a baby coming. This is about the hope of the world coming and realizing that there is no exceptions to the invitation. And as we move towards and into Advent, you know in the classic sense when you step into the first Sunday of Advent, the color in the church is black because that's the condition of the world that required the the Christmas day to finally arrive. And we step into the blackness and the darkness and we realize that without this kind of hope, there's no possibility for light. And then we work our way through those four Sundays and we finally get to the manger. And it's an amazing delight. We need that journey, friends. As much as all the excitement of our traditional Christmas is there, the culture is huge, it's surrounding us already, we've got through Black Friday, is to realize now that there's a meaning far greater. And I beg of myself, and I share this begging with you, that we will not get lost in the culture. If we're going to make any meaning and significance out of this journey we've been taking called gospel fluency, it's when we learn to talk the real story, not the ho-ho story. As much fun as that is, and it's going to happen in my house, please understand that, we still need to go and rise above and beyond. So, welcome as we move into this season of Advent that eventually arrives at Christmas. Well, love that music. Thank you ministry team. Bless me, I'm sure it blessed you as well. Everybody loves a story. I wish I had a big comfy chair here to sit on and slippers or whatever. But I want to share with you a story that uh, comes out of a book that you will have the opportunity of receiving. I imagine there's more instructions coming on that after uh, I finish here. But uh, it's called The Case for Christmas. Let me give you this story because I think it really provides the framework around everything that we're somehow going to try to share with you over these next four weeks as we take this uh, little journey. The book was written by Lee Strobel. Some of you may have even seen his movie called The Case for Christ. This little book is a segment or a snippet out of his larger uh, case called The Case for uh, Christ. And this is called The Case for Christmas. Lee Strobel was a a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. This is a real story uh, I am going to share with you. It's his story as he opens up this little book. The Chicago Tribune newsroom was eerily quiet on the day before Christmas. As I sat at my desk with little to do, my mind kept wandering back to a family I'd encountered a month earlier while I was working on a series of articles about Chicago's neediest people. The Delgados, 60-year-old Perfecta, and her granddaughters Lydia and Jenny had been burned out of their roach-infested tenement 
and we're now living in a tiny two-room apartment on the west side. As I walked in, I, I couldn't believe how empty it was. There, was. there was no furniture, no rugs, nothing on the walls, only a small kitchen table and one handful of rice. That's it. They were virtually devoid of possessions. In fact, 11-year-old Lydia and 13-year-old Jenny owned only one short-sleeved dress each, plus one thin gray sweater between them. And when they walked the half mile to school through the, the biting cold, Lydia would wear the sweater for part of the distance and then hand it to her shivering sister who would wear it the rest of the way. But despite their poverty and the painful arthritis that kept Perfecta from working, she still talked confidently about her faith in Jesus. She was convinced he had not abandoned them. I never sensed despair or self-pity in their home. Instead, there was a, a gentle feeling of hope and peace. I wrote an article about the Delgados and, and then quickly moved on to more exciting assignments. But as I sat at my desk on Christmas Eve, I, I continued to wrestle with the irony of the situation. Here was a family that had nothing but faith and yet seemed happy. Well, I had everything I needed materially but lacked faith. And inside, I felt as empty and barren as their apartment. I walked over to the city desk to sign out a car. It was, it was a slow news day with nothing of consequence going on. My boss could call me if something were to happen. In the meantime, I decided to drive over to West Homer Street and to see how the Delgados were doing. When Jenny opened the door, I couldn't believe my eyes. Tribune readers had responded to my article by showering the Delgados with a treasure trove of gifts, roomfuls of furniture, appliances, and rugs, a lavish Christmas tree with piles of wrapped presents underneath, carton upon carton, bulging with food, and a dazzling selection of clothing including dozens of warm winter coats, scarves, and gloves. And on top of that, they donated thousands of dollars in cash. But as surprised as I was by this outpouring, I was even more astonished by what my visit was interrupting. Perfecta and her granddaughters were getting ready to give away much of their newfound wealth. And when I asked Perfecta why, she replied in halting English, our neighbors are still in need. We cannot have plenty while they have nothing. This is what Jesus would want us to do. That blew me away. If I had been in their position at that time in my life, I would have been hoarding everything. I asked Perfecta what she thought about the generosity of the people who had sent all these goodies. And again, her response amazed me. This is wonderful. This is very good, she said, gesturing toward the largesse. We did nothing to deserve this. It's a gift from God. But, she added, it's not the greatest gift. No, we celebrate that tomorrow. That is Jesus. To her, this child in the manger was the undeserved gift that meant everything. More than material possessions, more than comfort, more than security. And at that moment, something inside of me wanted desperately to know this Jesus. Because in a sense... I saw him in Perfecta and her granddaughters. 
They had peace despite poverty, while I had anxiety despite plenty. They knew the joy of generosity, while I only knew the loneliness of ambition. They, they looked heavenward for hope, while I only looked out for myself. They experienced the wonder of the spiritual, while I was shackled in the shallowness of the material. And something made me long for what they had, or more accurately, for the one they knew. So what do we do with a story like that? Do we chalk it up as a, as a wonderful hallmark moment? Or do we see it as a, as a slightly deranged woman who should probably give more attention to her grandchildren and her own needs? After all, she could set up, all that she could set up for her grandkids for life was in that, that little two-room apartment. She could, she could save them from the plight of poverty. Well, it's good to have faith. But isn't there a more pragmatic reality that needs to be played out here? Or is there within this story a bigger overarching, more profound reality than what we feel comfortable acknowledging? Is the life of faith with Jesus as the author, the mentor, the teacher supposed to be taken to that extreme? Or is it just possible that this woman is the living manifestation of this thing we call Christianity. This wonderment that can only be found in and through the life of this Christ born in a manger, designed by the hand of God to be the savior of the world. Now, that is one powerful mouthful. That is one that has got to be allowed to sink in, simmer, and then try to figure out how in the world we could ever rise up to the level of that poor grandma in her two-room, empty apartment. That's our call. As we take this journey throughout these next four weeks, it isn't to collect the facts, my friends. It's to figure out how we can, by faith, embrace a story bigger than we can define. That's where we're heading. It's a huge step of faith. But we have a great mentor. His name is God. God giving away his greatest treasure in order to redeem the gift of our soul lost in the poverty of sin's neighborhood. He looks outside his door and he sees our lostness. He says, got to do something about that. No, he wanted us back. He wanted us back badly. So he gave us a, a carefully crafted set of manuscripts. We call them the Gospels that lay out for us this great account of love at its most extreme, love at its incomprehensible measure. Unfortunately, though, there's a sad element that's embedded in this story. There's a, there's a dark side to it all, the story of unbelief. Our world isn't buying it. At least it doesn't look like it is in our, in our Western context, at least. And, and maybe even the church. Those among us so influenced by this world's materialistic priorities who aren't ready to accept the fullness of its good news, like a simple wooded grandma who looked through the same eyes as Father God did when he saw our spiritual poverty embedded in the world's neighborhood, motivating him to give away his greatest treasure. So it's time to pause as we enter this Advent season 
This season of anticipation as we move towards a life-altering birth. We call it Christmas. The place where God modeled an amazing story of life, best stated this way. You all know the words to this one. At least many of us do. It goes like this. For God so loved the world that he opened his door, looked around, and gave his best treasure. He emptied his room and began to spread it around the world so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Everlasting life to those who believe. The operative word is believe, but sadly so many don't. Now I understand that this is a faith-based story. We're not going to be able to move to its great climatic conclusion until we enter into it by faith. There are no facts that we can give to you over these next four weeks that can fill the the size of, of, of of our soul's hunger. No, we have to step into it by this act of faith. But the beauty of it is, is that God did not leave us wandering around. He helps us. God knows our propensity to question and doubt. He paved and therefore paved a pathway of evidence to help shore up our struggling belief. Now, I'm still convinced that the best piece of evidence is perfecta. I don't think it gets any better than that. She's the very manifestation of everything else that we can say. I mean, that's the truth. But to state that as evidence is too hard to accept for the vast majority of our world, so God carefully laid out something that the questioning mind can give serious attention to. And that's why for the next four weeks, we're going to look at the evidence that an investigative journalist might use to find out the truth. The series is called The Case for Christmas. The work is anchored in the work of journalist Lee Strobel, like I mentioned, who began as an atheist, needing to satisfy his own need to put to rest this Christ thing. And in the end, provides us with the evidence, the results of his carefully sought-out investigation that not only brought him to faith, but assures the rest of us that we are standing on firm ground when we say we believe too. So where to begin? Well, this week, which is part one of four parts, we want to ask a critical question. Is there evidence that anybody who wrote these accounts, these, these gospels, that we, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is there anyone who wrote these accounts was actually around at the time this was all taking place? There's a liberal mindset that wants to throw suspicion into that, wants to take away the authority and the power of those four simple stories, uh, those four simple uh, stories that were handed down to us. We need to know that that's not the case. There's something to hang on to. Were there actually any eyewitnesses who participated in the writing of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Now, here's the disclaimer. I'm only reporting back what those who have studied this have revealed. I'm not the expert. They are. Just be clear on that, okay? I've tried not to legitimatize plagiarism here. I hope I'm giving, I'm giving uh, rightful uh, honor to those who have given us the facts, or at least these facts. But there's so much to take in here. Let's get back to the story. Eyewitnesses. 
To be certain eyewitness testimony is powerful. I, I don't know if you've ever sat through a criminal trial. When I was working for the newspaper, I would have opportunity to go along with the reporters and, and uh, observe a trial. And, and the climax of every trial that was successful was when a witness could stand up, describe the event, and point toward the guilty party. It changed everything. Eyewitness testimony is compelling and it's convincing. So let's come alongside of one such expert who can help us uncover those eyewitnesses to the gospel accounts telling us of this one born in a manger. Let me introduce to you Dr. Craig Blumberg. He's the author of a book entitled The Historical Reliability of the Gospels. If you want to know more about who he is, you've got to read the little book. It's in there. It gives him a little more. Uh, it gives, gives more information around him. Now, Dr. Bloomberg, in addressing the question of whether it is really possible to be an intelligent, critically thinking person and still believe that the four Gospels were written by the people whose names have been attached to them, his answer is really a very resounding yes. We can know this. And then he said this. But here's where the investigative work starts to play or take place. He says, it's important to acknowledge that strictly speaking, the Gospels are anonymous. Meaning that you can't find a manuscript that says, the Gospel of Luke by Luke, or the Gospel of John by John dedicated to his father. You're not going to get that information on the cover of the manuscripts. But in defense of his belief, he goes on to say this, that, have to listen to this carefully, the uniform testimony of the early church, those people who came to faith through the witness and testimony of those four writers and others, the uniform testimony of the early church was that Matthew, also known as Levi, the tax collector, and one of the 12 disciples was the author of the first gospel in the New Testament. That John Mark, a companion of Peter, was the author of the gospel called Mark. And that Luke, known as Paul's beloved physician, wrote both the gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And he goes on to say that, in fact, there are no competitors for these three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was just not in dispute within the early church. That was just the accepted reality. The story had faithfully been passed along. But then there's the skeptics among some who say, yeah, but maybe the authors themselves lied about who they really were. Maybe somebody wrote the book, threw the name on the, on the cover, and, 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 and set it up out in, you know, placed it at the front of some church, and off they went believing. Is that a possibility? Now, Bloomberg goes on to address that, and he writes, probably not. Remember, these were unlikely characters. Mark and Luke weren't even among the 12 disciples. Matthew was a former hated tax collector who would have been the most infamous character next to Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. Now, he goes on to say, now compare that reality, these, these guys have put their name on the book, to the fanciful, Blumberg calls them the fanciful uh, apocryphal gospels which were written much later. And those authors chose the names of, of well-known and exemplary figures in, in which to name their gospels after. Names like Philip, the gospel according to Philip, or Peter, or Mary, or 
James. So Bloomberg's conclusion is there would not have been any reason to attribute authorship to these less respected people if it weren't true. In other words, if they wanted their story to hit the bestsellers list, they would have avoided those names. Now that's exhibit one in this need to start working at uncovering the eyewitnesses. Time does not permit us to cover all the material. We're going to have the book. There's further information on the Gospel of John that you will find in the actual text uh, called The Case for Christmas. But let's move to the specifics. Or, 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 uh, move, yeah, move to the specifics. Sticking with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what specific evidence is there that they are the authors, the eyewitness authors, of the Gospels ascribed to their names? Again, falling on Dr. Blomberg, he says, and he's referencing the oldest and most significant testimony or, or writings, which came from a gentleman by the name of Papias, who was a Greek apostolic church father. He was the bishop of Heropolis. Now, when we see the title, Greek apostolic church father, perhaps the best way that we could look at that or understand it would be to say, uh, well, let, let's pretend, obviously, that Pastor Alan Buchanan was the apostle, all right? And, and he wrote faithfully all that he learned about Hillcrest. And then along came a guy by the name of Pastor Steve. So he's one generation, basically one generation removed from the actual uh, eyewitness. And so we're looking at a, a relatively short period of time. So can Pastor Steve pick up Alan's story and be faithful to it? Historians say absolutely yes. We'll look at that in, a, in, a, in another moment. So anyways, we've got Papias. He's sort of second generation in the, in the line of, of apostles, as a, in a sense. And he did this in about AD 25. And he openly, in his writings, affirmed that Mark, in fact, made no mistakes, he said, and did not, <coughs> excuse me, and did not include any false statements. Papias also said in his writings that Matthew had preserved the teachings of Jesus as well. Here's a man who studied the books. He's come back, and he's close enough to the story to say, no, that was right. We've heard that story. It's lived. It's moved among us. We know this has got some authenticity to it. It's invaluable testimony. Let's go a little further in this vein. Irenaeus and another of the early church fathers writing about 180 AD also confirmed the traditional authorship of these gospels. And here's what he wrote. This is Irenaeus, and I quote. Matthew published his own gospel among the Hebrews in their own tongue. And he did it when Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel in Rome and founding the church there. And after their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, himself handed down to us in writing the substance of Peter's preaching. Luke, the follower of Paul, sat down in a book, the gospel preached by his teacher. Here's the beauty of this ancient testimony from the early church fathers. They had complete confidence knowing that this information, this gospel record came from Luke, who's clearly seen and accepted as a historian or a kind of first century journalist. He was a just the facts, madam, just the facts type of guy. He, he was out there looking for it and putting down the things that he saw and heard and witnessed or heard of. 
Therefore, we can have a very high sense of confidence that the events that were recorded are based on either direct or indirect eyewitness testimony. They came from reliable sources, and the early church had confidence in them. That's our roots, friends. This is the stuff that they grew up off of. That's sort of the second exhibit in our investigation. But let's move on uh, in this search. There's another little piece of evidence which Blumberg thinks is rather significant, and it goes something like this. Now, admittedly, the format for writing biographies in Jesus' time is not like our modern approach. They didn't write it the way we did. We would have loved it if they had given the whole story, wouldn't we? So much of Jesus' life is left out. They got this, this exciting story going. We got this virgin birth happening and, and all that's going around it and the details of angels and Joseph and running off to Egypt. We got this huge mystery thing going on and the story stops. I mean, wouldn't we have loved to have known what Jesus was like growing up? That would have been our approach. Give us the details, all the little details. Did Jesus ever have a crush on a girl? But you never thought of that question before. Did he, did he ever pester his sisters? Did he play pranks on his brothers? Was he a good student? There's so many things that we could have picked up and wondered about Jesus, but that whole section of time is, 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 is dropped from the story. See, a good biography today would have included that detail, but the format in the day of the Gospels was very different. They were a much more serious bunch, I guess we could say. Life details were not as important as a focus on the great teachings or lessons that the life exemplified. It was more about what can we learn from their lives over the details of their lives? What was illustrative? It was more about what can we learn from them? Not just the facts. What, what could help other people? If we wrote this story, what's going to, in this story, is going to change the lives of those who read the story? What were the focus points that gave meaning to that person's period in history? So when it came to writing up the life of Jesus, the early Christians believed, and again I quote from Dr. Blumberg, he wrote this, that as wonderful as Jesus' life and teachings and miracles were, they were meaningless if it were not historically factual that Christ died and was raised from the dead and that this proved, provided atonement or forgiveness of the sins of humanity. So it didn't matter what happened in his teenage year or in his growing up childhood. What mattered was, if people get this story, it has to come through the significance of a resurrection, a life that would change everything. That was the big detail. So if the facts were going to be given, it had to lead somewhere, and it led to this great redemptive story. So Mark, in particular, as the writer of the earliest gospel, devotes roughly half of his narrative, half of his gospel, to the events leading up to and including one week's period of time in Jesus' life, and then culminating in his death and resurrection. So no wonder we get this amazing account of not just a miracle man or a teacher who spoke with great authority, but of one whose birth cannot be explained apart from God, or whose life seems to seemed to culminate in such a horrible ending only to encounter him fully alive and an amazing story that talks about resurrection, hope, and promise. So for those, for those were the real lessons from the obvious Savior Messiah. So since those facts overshadow every other detail, one does not need to dwell on all the other facts surrounding his life other than those that would support the bigger 
overriding narratives around his birth, etc. This is Exhibit 3. At least for Blomberg, he says this is important for us to understand because their storylines... Uh, their story lines up with their biographical genre, lines up with their historical, cultural, biographical presentation, given, as, given us serious reason to believe them to be authentic, not fabricated, but rather written in close proximity to the events that they were describing. In other words, when you read Mark and you put it beside somebody else's book written in the same time period or biography written in the same time period, you're going to discover sort of the same format. It's just like when you, when you watch a, a Hallmark movie now, you already know what's going to happen within five minutes, right? There's a format that takes place. And so here, here we have this format. It lays out. And so as people, historians looking back and saying, is this reliable? They look at this and they say, no, this fits into this time period. Helps them to believe it's reliable. But now let's move to, the, to what is probably one of the best reasons in helping us understand that it is safe to believe that we are getting an eyewitness account. This is important. This can't be fiction. This, has to, this thing is so huge and so big, it has to come from somebody who was there, who saw it, faced, felt it, or held hands with somebody very reliable who had seen the actual facts. Here was a question presented to Dr. Blomberg. Here's the question. You have to listen. It's a kind of lengthy sort of statement question sort of thing. He was asked, some scholars say the Gospels were written so far after the events that legend developed and distorted what was finally written down, turning Jesus from merely a wise teacher into a mythological son of God. Is that a reasonable hypothesis? Or is there good evidence that the Gospels were recorded earlier than that, before legend could totally corrupt what was ultimately recorded? Here's his response. There's two separate issues here, and it's important to keep them separate. And then he goes on to say, I do think there's a reason for suggesting early dates for the writing of the Gospels. But even if there wasn't, that argument doesn't work anyway. You see, the, the standard scholarly dating, even in very liberal circles, is Mark wrote his in the 70s. That's not 1970s, folks. That's A.D. 70, all right? He wrote them in the 70s. Matthew and Luke wrote theirs in the 80s, and John in the 90s. But listen, that's still within the lifetimes of various eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus, including hostile eyewitnesses who would have gladly enjoyed correcting the false teaching if it were so. Remember, the apostles weren't the only ones writing their stories and beliefs. The Bible wasn't the only book that came out of that time period. There were all kinds of people writing stuff and people who would have been critics as well as those who would have been uh, sympathetic to what was being written. And consequently, these late dates for the gospel really aren't that late. For example, the earliest biographies of Alexander the Great were written by Arian and Plutarch more than, listen, 400 years after Alexander's death in 323 BC. And yet historians consider them to be generally trustworthy. And yes, legendary material about Alexander did develop over time. 
but it was only in the centuries after these two writers wrote their initial accounts. In other words, the first 500 years kept Alexander's story pretty much intact. 500 years, Alexander's biography is still readable and believable. So whether the Gospels were written 60 years or 30 years after the life of Jesus, the amount of time is negligible by comparison. It's almost a non-issue. But, but is there a case then for an even earlier date? So if we took the, the liberal, the most liberal of suggestions, and, and, and he's saying, but that's still safe figures, we don't need to worry about, but can we still slide them back closer to the actual event that they are writing about? Well, Bloomberg's convinced there is, and here's his rationale. He says, this evidence begins with the book of Acts, which was written by Luke, remember? Now, if you have read Acts, you'll remember that Acts ends rather abruptly. It ends apparently unfinished as far as, as, far as a biography or even a, a point in history. Paul, who is the central figure in the latter part of the book of Acts, is under house arrest in Rome. That's sort of the writings in the last part of the book of Acts. And with that, the book abruptly ends. What happened to Paul? We don't find out from Acts, probably because the book was written before Paul was put to death. In that case, it means Acts cannot be dated later than A.D. 62. The, 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 the suggested date of Paul's uh, death can't be written later than that. Now, having established that, we can move backwards from there. And since Acts is part two of Luke's sequel, meaning the first part of the sequel was the Gospel of Luke, therefore, being the first part, it must have been written earlier than the second part. Logic isn't difficult here, really. Uh, the second sequel is written after the first part of it, and, uh, and so therefore the first part's written earlier than the second part. But here's the catch. Or here's, here's this neat little piece. And since Luke incorporates parts of the Gospel of Mark, readily acceptable reality, that means Mark was written even earlier. Now, if you allow maybe a year for each of these, then you end up with Mark written no later than about A.D. 60, maybe even the late 50s. If Jesus was put to death in A.D. 30 or 33, somewhere in there, we're talking about a maximum gap of 30 years or so. Now, comparing that to Alexander's 400 years, well, that's like a news flash, really meaning we can rest confidently that what we get from the Gospels is a reliable and accurate eyewitness account of the events of Jesus' life. I like that. Much more to the story. 
you're going to be offered the opportunity to get the book that will give you a little more detail. For those of you who are hungry for this, pick up Lee Strobel's book called The Case for Christ, and you'll get more information. And then there will be in the back of a bibliography, because Lee, Lee, Lee Strobel wasn't the only one who thought he should go out and disprove the resurrection and found out that it was true and became a believer. There's, there's several other authors who set out on that same journey trying to disprove this thing called uh, Christianity, or at least disprove the resurrection, which Christianity rests on, right? And so there's material around there. We're, we're just giving you this little tidbit. I hope it whets your appetite to learn, learn this. Because like I said, th this is a faith journey we're on. But boy, I'll tell you, when you can come along beside this kind of stuff, at least for me, it really helps me to say, yeah, I'm not just believing something silly. There's some substance to this faith of mine. Anyways, what's our conclusion to all of this then? So what, what does that really mean then for us today? Well, it, it certainly builds a strong case that what we have by faith come, faith come to believe is credible and, and reasonably reliable. But like the writers of old, motivated not by the facts but the meaning behind the facts, what's the larger meaning for us today? Mark Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 may hold some significance there for us. You see, this gospel story was not to be some quaint, localized story holding significance in a small country of little consequence. No, there's something bigger going on here. This was to be a story told far and wide. It was to become a global story. Therefore, God built an amazing storyline that was initiated long before these gospel accounts. Mark recognizes that. So when he starts his story, he doesn't start with the present. He slips back into another reality that he's very familiar with, and that's the work of the prophets. And at the very opening of his, of his little book, Matthew, we get, do we have a slide for Mark there? Anyways, here's, here's how Mark right starts his little gospel. And this was the first, first of the gospels written. He said, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. The messenger is John the Baptist. The first witness of Jesus to the world around him, right? Bearing witness to this great message that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. What an amazing introduction. But hey, the end of the story is even more amazing. Yes, Jesus has come. He has done amazing things. He died and, and then he, and he rose from the dead. But even there, the story builds. Jesus was depending on the eyewitness status of the apostles. In fact, he commissioned them to go to grow the kingdom on the basis of their eyewitness observations. You've seen, go tell, Luke 24, 48 and 49. Jesus speaking to the 12. Well, the 11, I guess, at this point in time. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Why? Because the story has to have something more than facts. It has to have an energy that comes from deep within that can only be, in, be uh, arrived at through the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't go off and tell this story. They're all going to think you're wacko. Stay put. I'm going to do some work here, some significant work. 
That's how Luke ends it. Then he opens into the second sequel, or the next sequel, the first sequel, I guess. So when they had come together, as Jesus had asked them to do, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epics, while the Father has fixed upon, fixed by his own authority, but, so you don't need to know this stuff, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now listen. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. But, but, it's important. We love the story, but we don't need just the story. We need the reason for the story, because that's where the energy comes from. That's where the motivation comes from. That's where the purpose for the story is going to find its significance. But, see, the beauty of this isn't that they were just good preachers for their time, faithfully writing out the accounts recorded in the Gospels. They were good writers recording it for our time. We have to get that. This is an inspired, holy, anointed piece of work that has lasted the ages. And when we open the pages, those pages are just as new for us as the day they were written on their manuscripts, on their papyrus sheets or whatever they wrote on. But now it gets better because there's another climax to this story that has been evidenced by all those who accepted the gospel account for themselves, for all who believed. Remember the the passage? For those who who, uh, accepted the gospel account for themselves from the time of the apostles right up to Sunday, November the 25th, 2018. We are not walking among ancient manuscripts, folks. We are walking among a living reality, the witness and testimony of those who saw and heard right secondhand what was going on. Matthew accounts helps us with this a bit. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But there's not a period there. This isn't just about get out there and and tell the story for for this period of time. Here's here's the amazing addendum. I I think I missed it all these years until I sat down to put this little thing together. Because here's the last part of it. It's verse 20, Matthew 28. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I'm going out there and I'm telling the story, not to get converts. I'm out there telling the story so that I can create disciples who will make disciples, who will make disciples, who will make disciples. This was a journey that was going to go and live out in reality until the day of Jesus' return. This is a living legacy that happens. They were told to obey everything I have commanded you, and what those disciples were commanded to do was to go, to get out there, do this thing. Don't just tell the story, live the story. No, we get to tell the story just as well as they do. This is not just a great story, but as the authors of these Gospels learned relatively quickly, this is a life changer. And embracing this story for themselves, they knew it had to be told, so they did to you and me. Yeah, there's a few people in between, but they told it to you and me. This is a living story, remember? We're called from the sidelines into the game. 
And that's why over the, the past eight weeks, we have been giving ourselves this grand and glorious challenge to be gospel fluent, to not only know the story, but to live the story. So in life and word, we would take this authority given to us by the Holy Spirit and make it live just as it did 2,000 plus years ago. And therefore, as we move through this Advent season, I'm thinking the best prayer we could have as a congregation, that's, that's you and me, is that we find more than next year's garage sale items under our Christmas tree. But rather that God would give to us a deep, growing love for those who the Father loves. That he would give to us the eyes of perfecta, the widowed grandma who saw the desperate plight in her neighbors. And with that, a deep desire to do what those shepherds, the earliest of eyewitnesses, did after they encountered the Christ child. As they were heading back to the hills and back to the job, they had to tell everyone what they had experienced. Everything that they had seen. It's a story that can't go underground. You can't, li- you, you, you can't literally li- slip into it in a life-changing encounter and close your lips. Because we have eyewitness evidence ourselves, we have our own personal encounters with Jesus, a story so personal, so precious, so simple. So why not write our own good news story, our gospel account, our personal eyewitness account, and then ask our God to anoint us with power, helping us to get it out there sharing the best of all the gifts with our neighbors, sharing this reality that four men witnessed and recorded and thus taught us and that Perfecta modeled for us. Amen. Let us pray for Jesus. We need need moving. We need that thing that you do with inside us. Thank you for the facts. They're, They're so helpful, but we know that it needs the anointing of your spirit placed on top of them. That's what we ask for. We ask that, Lord, as we move towards this wonderful time of the year, as we embrace the living Jesus, that it will not be just a celebration of December the 25th, but it would be the celebration of a life so grand, so amazing, that even the darkness within our world cannot shut out the light, our light, our personal lights. May we be the eyewitnesses of this truth that you have called us to. Amen.